You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Good morning. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Quick preface. Um, I know last week I mentioned something about uh, my son Titus broke his arm and I did like leave here quickly and some other stuff. I'm going to do that again today at the end of this gathering. And just uh, the reason why I'm giving you this preface, he had surgery yesterday and uh, he, he didn't get to come home from the hospital yesterday. So it's been a little bit of a long night. Um, about uh, 18 months, maybe two years ago, there was a sermon in which I just cried the whole time. And I don't think I said any words. And, and my, my son reminds me all the time, hey, Dad, remember that, time, that sermon where you just cried a lot? Um, so what I wanted you to know is if there's like emotion coming out of me, uh, it's not you, it's me, all right? And so we're going to do this today, all right? Uh, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 2, and we're going to jump in here. And Matt, that little preface, that did not go against my time preaching today. So let the record show. <clears throat> Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness. Gosh, we do come in here in, in all different ways, and some thriving and some surviving, uh, some beat up, some built up. And so today, would you, in every opportunity, would you, would you show us who you are? Would you show us who we are? And would you let us be thrown to your grace, the only thing that can bridge that gap? Let that be true in each one of our hearts today. We love you and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name. Tell your sister you're sorry. All right? Maybe you've heard that before. Something like that. Maybe you've said that. Maybe you've been uh, the brother or the sister that's been told that. Um, and, and in response, we've probably all seen kind of the classic callous-hearted, sorry, uh, not sorry, um, and, and, and then maybe you've even participated in this, the, the, uh, the similar-toned demand for forgiveness. Your brother said he's sorry. Tell him you forgive him. You know, no, arms crossed. Tell him you forgive him. Uh, I forgive you, fine, you know. And so, like, we, we've probably seen that in that frequent dialogue. We are encouraging... Uh, we are encouraging restoration, and we might miss a bit uh, in, in the desired effect of what we're trying to do, but, but the, the intent is not horrible that, that we understand that families should not be broken, and there's probably an action committed against one that caused the other to be upset, and we're trying to mend that fracture um, the best that we can, and, and we're hinting that, that ownership of wrong, wrongdoing is important, so, so the idea of tell her you're sorry, and, and in my family we're like, you know, so if there's like a, a, a sorry, you know, no, 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 like, what are you sorry for? I don't know. Like, uh, okay, well, we need to talk this through a little bit. So, so there has to be an understanding of, of ownership. That's important. Um, when we sin against another, we, we get to own that. Um, and then we, we're also enforcing the idea that, that forgiveness is an appropriate response to confession, if someone legitimately humbles themselves and they say, hey, I, I'm sorry, 
not, not in that dialogue that I just described, but, but or, or what our parents are trying to get at is this forgiveness is appropriate when, when there's confession. But what we can't do <clears throat> is we can't force what, what we often can't find in that dialogue. And that is restoration flowing from heartfelt love for one another. That's, that's what we're striving for when we're trying to mend that brokenness. But, but you can't force that. And the reality is, in, in that little snippet of a dialogue that we've probably all participated in in some way, shape, or form, uh, kids probably don't feel loved by their parents. I, I know they probably don't feel loved by one another. And, and I know, as a parent, that the parents don't feel loved by the kids. And so this, this fracture like takes a toll. And what we, what we have to understand is that sin's goal is to alienate and divide. But the main idea today is, is sin doesn't get the final word when love has its way. <clears throat> in the same way, this is what Paul seems to be saying to the church that he established in Corinth. And, and just a little bit of back, like what he's talking about, what relationship he's talking about in this. But historically, most people seem to uh, kind of understand this to be a follow-up from what he wrote in 1 Corinthians. So Paul wrote, uh, writes a letter, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians. He calls it such. And then we believe there might be a, a, a 1.5 in there somewhere. And what we have is the second letter to the Corinthians. And he, he's following back up. And what had happened in that situation was uh, a man was having inappropriate relations with his dad's wife. His, his stepmom. Um, and... And what, what was happening, uh, the church at Corinth seems rather proud that this guy's still hanging around with them. Like, they might be saying, like, what? Like, Paul, you told us to love, right? We're just loving this. Yeah, he's not making the best life choices right now, but, but you told us to love, right? Like, yeah, he, he might still take communion when the church gathers, but like, hey, that's Jesus, right? That's love. And so... Paul, he confronts that idea, in, in, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he actually encourages them to remove him from the church. And he says something like this, Deliver such a one to Satan, so that his flesh may be devoured, and his soul might be saved in the end. That's, that's what Paul says to him. So, so uh, sin doesn't get the final word, when love has its way. And what we're looking at now is Paul following up to that, uh, to that letter that he wrote in 1 Corinthians, and he's telling them how to deal with this guy uh, a little while down the line now. And there are going to be three ideas that we're pulling out of this. Sin delivers pain. Love delivers forgiveness. And ownership delivers restoration. And just as a preface, the way we approach preaching we're not trying to, to be so creative that you can't connect the words that we say up here to this text. So when you look at these things, I, I want you to like see that what we try to do is just say what's here. And then after we figure out what's here, we get to bring it to bear on our own minds and hearts. right? Because this wasn't written to us. It was written to this church. But it was written for us and for our benefit today. So the first thing we see is that sin delivers pain. And I'm just reading 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, 
He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So, so this guy has sinned, or someone has sinned, we're assuming it's this guy, and he says, if anyone has caused pain, gosh, it's, it's not so much me that's feeling the pain, you guys are bearing the weight of this pain. Um, it's, it's, it's this sin that is bringing, bringing about disunity, and, and this particularly public sin is causing y'all some pain. See, sin begins with mistrusting God. That's, that's how it all began in the garden. Sin begins with mistrusting God, and it, and it comes from broken places, and it breaks all that it touches. So, so we cannot minimize the effect of sin. And I know in an, in an elevated grace culture, sometimes we can do that. We can say, yeah, but grace abounds. Right? And Paul would say, what, what, should we sin all the more so that grace might abound? Well, certainly not. And so we have, to t- we have to understand that sin delivers pain. We can't minimize the sin of others or, or the sin of ourselves. From the beginning, when sin exists, pain is near. And the first, uh, the, the first place that this kind of begins to fracture is relationships. And again, we see it in the garden, that, that when sin happens, when, when we mistrust God, the first thing that breaks is the relationship between God and man. The second thing that breaks is the relationship between man and man, right? Or, 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 or creation or humanity. And, and then, it, then it breaks between humans and all of creation. And so, so sin breaks stuff. And in the life of church community, it breaks unity and it breaks purity. And both of those things are really important for the life of the church. So there is this misconception about God, and, and maybe it's largely from outside of the church, and there are probably some inside the church that believe this as well, that the law of God exists to kind of like keep the religious in line. Like God is some cosmic Santa Claus, right? And, and, and he sees you while you're sleeping, and, and, he, and, and, and all those things, and he's just, um, his rules are just to enforce and to puff himself up. That's not true. Law, the, the law of God and God telling us what, what's good, it reveals the character and the nature of God. That's what the law does. It, it first and foremost shows us who God is, and when we know who God is, then we get to know what good is. The second thing the law does is it shows us how to live as a community. And so if you read through the Old Testament and you have this in mind, then you'll begin to see that as the law unfolds, Gosh, you're learning about God and about, about who He is, and you're learning about good and what good is. And then God applies that, that goodness to one another and, and how we get to live in community. The third thing in particular that we see in the Old Testament that's also true in the New is that it shows us how to live as lights in the darkness. So as the church, we get to live as lights among the darkness. As Israel, they get to live as lights, reflecting God, loving one another, uh, to, to the dark world around them. And when that happens, um, we, we are reflecting God's love. And so we get to know God. And what the Bible teaches us is that we get to demonstrate God by how well we love one another. That is a, that is a huge part of what we get to do 
together. We get to demonstrate God by how well we love one another. And that means that, that the way of righteousness, all the good that God tells us to live in light of, it's not restrictive. It's not something, it's, it's not just stop that, stop that. But, but I want, it's, it's not like that. It, it, we think that it's restrictive when we live by the flesh, but, but actually the way of righteousness is the way of life. It doesn't quench life, it gives life. So we have to understand that when we're looking at this. So, so when sin, uh, when we consider sin, we have to have in mind that, that that's intentional rebellion against God and against His people. Sin is by its nature destructive against God's community. And when that happens, the natural result is pain. It's like looking directly at the sun or trying to breathe underwater, doing things that you're not meant to do. And when you do those things, they, they cause pain. Sin cuts against the grain of all that's good. So when we consider God's covenant community, the church, us, we have the privilege to live out the righteousness of God. And the Bible says all kinds of stuff about who we are and what that looks like. He says you're a holy nation. He says that we are a royal priesthood. He says we are a covenant family built upon the life and the work and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And when we forget who we are, sin lurks and sin breaks and sin delivers pain. And so it only makes sense that because God loves his family, he hates sin. And when we are trusting God rightly, we too hate sin. So, so God doesn't just leave us there. He first confronts sin in the world. And he does that by dashing the, the death blow of the cross and by paying the debt of death that was meant for us. And he gathers sin and he becomes sin and he took sin's penalty and he absorbed sin and he, and he took its best shot. And then he blasted out of its grip to deliver life to us. And that means that for those who have been rescued from sin by faith alone, through, through grace alone, in Christ alone, it means that we get to hate sin too. It means that because we hate it, we get to confront it, which brings us into this text. Paul has written in his first letter, as I said, to protect the purity of the church by removing this unrepentant sinner. And he calls for discipline against this uh, brother, not so much brother, so that he feels the weight of his sin. Remove such a one from among you. And, and he calls the Corinthians to do that so that they feel the weight of this guy's sin. So that they, they bear the weight of what's going on. And all of that is not just to be mean to the guy, but they do that in hopes of restoring him. And look, any time this, this conversation happens, our hope is always that we might bring about restoration. And look, be, because this stuff happens in personal context, and because uh, there's, there's all kinds of other things at play, you're going to be drawn to think that it's about something else. You're, you're going to be drawn to punish rather than discipline. You're going to be drawn to, to cut out as if that's the goal rather than cut out in hopes of restoration. 
So what, what Paul says is, consider him as one who is not in Christ by faith. He's not one of us. And, and this is essentially what we call church discipline. That's what we see here. And to some, that's a foreign term that you've never, you've never heard of it in your life. Like, wow, that is a thing, huh? And it is a thing. Um, to some, it's a painful scene. And to some, it is evidence of God's grace on his family. And, and even among this community, we've been in rooms before where we've had conversations that look like this. And, and just as a posture of heart, we should not enjoy that. But we should get to delight in, in God restoring His church. So, so some churches, they lead out of fear, and they never engage sin. In some churches, uh, on the other side of that spectrum, they lead out of dominance, and they power up, and they love to engage sin. And what I'm telling you is, we should, we should be neither. We should not delight in discipline, and we should not run from discipline either. In fact, in Proverbs and, and in Hebrews and other places, we, we learn about the character of God, and this is what it says in Proverbs 3.12. The Lord disciplines those He loves. And then He goes on, and He says, As a father, the son in whom He delights. Look, discipline is no fun. And look, if you're a kid, straight up, if you can understand me today, your parents, they do not want to be mean to you. But, but when they discipline you, that's because they love you. So since the Lord entrusts care into the hands of His own, He's he pressing against personal and family sin. Um, Mark Dever, he, he's a pastor and, and author of Nine Marks of a Healthy Church and, and all the Nine Marks stuff. This is what he says. This is super helpful. He says, church discipline is the church's act of confronting someone's sin and calling them to repent, which if the person doesn't repent, will culminate in excluding a professing Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper because of the serious, unrepentant sin. So it's, it immediately has like this heavy thing. But, but I want to redirect you. Uh, he goes on to say, and this is super helpful. He says, in a broader sense, dismembers pursue holiness and to fight sin. Everything the church does to, to, to point us to pursue holiness and to fight against sin. And he goes on, he says, preaching and teaching and prayer and, and corporate worship and accountability and relationships and, and godly oversight from pastors and elders. All of those things are forms of discipline. But, and I promise this point is the longest one by far, right? We're still in point one, remember that? I think it was something like uh, sin is bad. It's super painful, right? Uh, I do want to make a distinction to let you know that th this isn't just black and white. And so uh, there are those probably in this room who are around and who are among the church who are not part of God's one universal church. Y you might gather here every week. Y you might spend time in community group. You might have relationships that doesn't make you part of, of God's church. It makes you part of this church. And we can't see who's a part of God's family and who's not. And so uh, what that means is, is there are those who are around 
and who have never decided to let their life be crucified so that Christ might live. There are also those who are part of the church who are struggling with sin, but who are striving for harmony and holiness. That your identity is Christ's identity. And at times you struggle with sin. And guess what? That's every one of us. And, and then there are those who are claiming to be part of the community. You, you, you might come up and take communion. You might say that this is your church home. But you also might be willingly walking in sin. And, and not repenting of that. That's who Paul had cast out of the local church. So, so all of this, the reason why I, I give you that distinction, all of this can get muddy. It's why the church is full of messy people. Every single one of them. It's, it's why a, a good church is a messy church. Um, but it's also why we have, we have covenant membership. It's why we have church membership, so that we can define the relationship, so that we can say, yeah, I'm part of this family, all right? And, and when we say I'm part of this family, we commit to the family, we commit to the mission. And what that means is that we get to walk with one another in, in, a, in a formal, in a supernatural way that allows us to, to, to confront one another in the sin that we have. That's not a bad thing. So, so Paul's call in 1 Corinthians was to remove such a one because the pain of his sin uh, was, was bringing disunity to the church. But sin doesn't get the final word when love has its way. And so we read on. And the second thing we see is that love delivers forgiveness. So let's read on in verse 6 through 8. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What's the punishment by the majority? That you would treat him like, like he's not a believer. That you would exclude him from the fellowship. So he says, for such a one, this punishment... Uh, is enough. Authority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So we see this, this follow-up call that's threefold. He says, forgive him, comfort him, and, and I'm begging you, love him. I'd argue that, that it's nearly impossible to forgive and to comfort if you're not loving. And so, so uh, we, we can say, uh, sorry. We can say, I, I forgive you. Uh, but neither can take root or, or produce good fruit without being motivated by love. Which is why it's literally the thing that shows us how to please God. The law of all laws is this. What? To, to love God. And to love one another. To love God and to love your neighbor. So when we do that, then all of the rules, they, they matter because they help us understand what love is. But all of the rules don't matter when our hearts are motivated by love. So he says, I beg you to reaffirm your tolerance of this guy. So he says, I beg you to reaffirm your ability to just Stomach being in the same room with him. No, he, he doesn't say that. He says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for this brother. And that's a big difference. So, so Paul, let me get this straight. First you tell us to, to remove him. 
Uh, in, in fact, Paul, you said something about giving him to Satan so that he might be destroyed, so that his soul might be spared in the end, right? Did, didn't you say that, Paul? Y- yes, that, that's what I said. And, and now you're telling us to love him, to forgive him, to comfort, to welcome him back? Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm telling you, right? And, and it points to a couple things. It, it's tough to know when to press in. And, and when to, to simply be present and care for. Uh, we don't know this, but we can only assume that this man is demonstrating a repentant heart. Otherwise, this would not make any sense. We don't see it. We don't, we don't see a letter from this guy. We don't see his perspective, but, but it seems to be indicating that this guy has a repentant heart. Everything that I read assumes that this guy's heart had turned. Otherwise, this just simply wouldn't make any sense. So, so what I'm asking you is, how does it make you feel when you hear this? That the guy was being inappropriate with his dad's wife, and he was sent out of the church, and Paul said, welcome him back. How does that make you feel? Because I, I, I bet that some of you would say, gosh, what took so long? Gosh, why were you being so mean to him to begin with? And on the other side of that, some of you might be, might be saying, that's great, man. He can be in the room. But he better watch himself when he's around my mom. It's fair. Let me read this. One commentator says that the, the tendency of human nature is to hold the offender at arm's length, to forgive but not forget, to say, I receive you back but to treat the person like a leper. Philip Hughes reminds us that discipline, which is so inflexible as to leave no place for repentance and reconciliation, has ceased to be truly Christian discipline. For it is no less a scandal to cut off the repentant sinner from all hope of reentry into the comfort and security of the fellowship of the redeemed community than it is to permit flagrant wickedness to continue unpunished in the body of Christ. See, what Paul's demanding is that they reopen community. What he's, what he's commanding is that they reopen their hearts. What he's commanding is that they reopen the table. That, that, that it's, it's the bread that represents the body of Jesus, and it's the cup that represents the blood of spilled by Jesus. And in some sense, this is not a big deal. And in some sense, it's a very big deal. And what Paul is saying, welcome him in back to the family. So at the end of the gathering, when when this guy responds, and he, he remembers what Christ has done for him, that his body was broken for his sin, that his blood was spilled for his sin, when he remembers that, let him declare it among us. Welcome him in to this family. And, and, and so he's saying, welcome him into this community, to the table, to your heart. Welcome him back into your life. Now look, I don't want you to mishear me. Uh, I'm not suggesting that this is easy. I'm not suggesting that it's clean. I'm not suggesting that there's not gray area all over this. I'm not suggesting, I, I don't think Paul's suggesting, obviously he knows the situation better than, than I do, but, but I don't want us to think that, that this process is easy. I, I, 
I don't want you to think that it's not difficult to determine what a repentant heart looks like. See, we know because the Bible gives us plenty of of the other side of this, plenty of precaution about not not, uh, being duped by the deceiver or the manipulator. And so I'm not suggesting that this is easy, that it's black and white, that that he said he's sorry, so, so forgive him. I'm not suggesting that. What I'm telling you is this is tough, right? And, and what I'm telling you is if we don't have love for one another, then, then we can't sort this out. Trust is, is long established and it's easily broken. But, but our aim, what we do see clearly is that to begin to offer legitimate forgiveness, we must be gripped and compelled by legitimate Love, love from God, love for God, and as a result, love for God's church. So we get to love the person more than we love their response to us. Sin doesn't get the final word when love has its way. The last thing is is this, ownership delivers restoration. I want to read uh, verse 9 through 11. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Restoration, it, it reunites what's broken. Clearly, when this flows from, from love and the center of, of our heart, it involves both discipline and forgiveness. Uh, you press hard, just like God does. He presses hard against pride, against division, against sin, against wickedness, with the hope that the Spirit would restore. And what we see is that the Spirit uses us to do that. Paul's point is this ownership is a responsibility that the church must bear. Paul says that he aims to test their obedience. He has established them, but he wants them to take responsibility for the pursuit of God's glory. The local church gets to take responsibility for this. We get to do this together. He, he wants them to have responsibility for the pursuit of God's glory, for living in a holy and healthy way, for pressing towards Purity and unity for being motivated by love with the hopes of restoration. So he says, I I forgive. If you forgive, I trust you in that. What he's trying to do is give away ownership that they must have to stand on their own feet in, in healthy maturity in the way that the church ought to operate. So he's trying to give them ownership for purity and ownership for discipline and ownership for forgiveness and ownership for restoration. And all this, he says, in the presence of Christ. Why? Why does he say that? So that Satan doesn't have his way. So that Satan doesn't outwit. So that Satan doesn't dupe us. So that the the deceiver doesn't Deceived, so that the schemer doesn't scheme. We, we are not to be ignorant of his designs, is what he says. What a sweet redirection that we see from Paul. 
He says, hey guys, when you follow Jesus, when you, when you hear the words of Jesus, we're one. We're united. Right? We, we bring God glory. We, we are pure by the, the white robe that Christ wears and gives to us. By faith and grace alone. But when we follow Satan, we're being led a resentment and bitterness and division and disunity and, and fracture. So, guys, let us not be duped. Right? And, and just knowing how this works, I think the reason why he would remind them and why he would remind us of this is because it's so easy. None of this happens in some rigid, uh, here's the document, what's the protocol? None of this happens that way. It happens through real relationships. Relationships that might be long established. Relationships that, that might be blossoming. And so all of these things become personal and it entwines our flesh. And so it's so easy for us to just vilify and hate, hate the person that harms us. And what he's saying is aim to restore them. Don't believe the lie. Don't be duped. Let us not be that ignorant. So God does something incredible and He does something ultimate to take the sting of sin away. And it's good news to the sinner and it's good news to the saint. And He invites us into the process both to discipline and to love and, and ultimately to restore. And we get to recognize, we too get to recognize that sin delivers pain. And, and I know that some of you have experienced that deeply. And I know that some of you need to understand that today. That, that your sin, that your contribution, not only will it bring pain to you, but it will bring pain to those that you love the most. Those that are dearest to you. Your sin not only will bring pain to you and those nearest to you, but to this family. That's what sin does. It brings pain. And not only will it bring pain to this family... But it has, has a negative dent in the perspective of the kingdom of God. Of, of brings pain, we have to understand that. But we also get to understand that love delivers forgiveness. And that, that holding grudges is not something that we get to do. Look, and again, this, nothing easy about deep wounds. Not suggesting that at all. But, but to be motivated by, by bitterness and by, by a grudge that you have against someone... Maybe for something that they did that, that harmed you deeply. We don't get to do that. That's not what we are controlled by. In fact, what the Bible says is that he, he was crucified with Christ. So it's not, it's not even us who lives. It's not even Michael who lives. You know who it is? It's Jesus who lives in me. So we get to crucify the flesh. And that's, that's one time. And guess what? It, it's the story of our life. We constantly are drawn back to, to as Paul says, uh, beat the, the flesh into submission. And we get to remember that, that ownership delivers restoration. That look, this thing that we're doing, this thing that we are, God's body, it, it's, it's not a solo act. So we get to take responsibility personally to, to be the church, but we also get to take responsibility collectively. And, and we're, we're not always going to agree on everything, I promise. 
But what we get to do is we get to be unified in everything. And then the things that we don't agree, gosh, we, you know what we get to do? We get to start with love, and we get to talk it out. And when I do something that you don't trust, you, you know what I would love? Gosh, I would, I would love to talk to you about it. And you know what, if I'm wrong, and, and I won't speak for myself, I'll say the other men that I get to lead with, all right, Matt Tucker, Scott O'Donoghue, and Adam Hanauer, We're not, we're not just co-workers. They love you. They love you like Christ loves his church. We don't always get it right. But these are humble brothers So we've got to figure this stuff out together. There are leaders who lead teams and deacons, men and women, who serve this body, and they do it selflessly. They lay down their life. Now, we don't always get it right, but we get to build one another up. And look, like six months ago, like these tears might be from a different place, but look I, I'm not at a place that's hurting. Like, I love you guys. And you know what? Like, I, I know that you love us. And that's the beauty of, of this text. And so, um, so what does ownership mean for you in this seat as it relates to discipline and restoration? I'm going to give you 38 things real quick. <laughs> Just five. Number one is this. Hate your sin. If you're in Christ, the Spirit dwells not in temples made of hands, but in you. Trust Him enough to hate your sin. Right? John Owen famously, kill your sin lest it be killing you. Both of you can't win. The lie is that my sin is not causing that much damage that I can like ride the line and I can, I can, I can hold the, uh, the, 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 it's a lie. Hate your sin. See God clearly. See yourself clearly. Make no excuses. The, the beauty of, of a life in Christ, different from, from any, other, any other world religion or, or even a religiosity that's built on this book, is that we, we can't pretend. We can't perform. So when we stand before God, we, we don't say like, ah, here I am. But you know, you know why I did that, right? You, you know, I keep... Right? So we get to just, we get to hate our sin. The second thing is, is we get to... Uh, let me go back one more. Hating your sin is the beginning of church discipline. That's where it begins, right? The second thing is, is trust God to love you in spite of your sin. You get to join the family, and, and you get to do that by, by repenting and by turning from, from a life of sin and by believing and by trusting and by faith alone and God's grace alone. And that is good news, that we get to trust the fact that Jesus was punished for our sin, Him not deserving that, 
so that we don't get to walk in that. Trust God to love you in spite of your sin. Third, this. Trust God to discipline you when you revert back to your sin. He's a good dad. And look, don't ever think that everything that, that's bad that happens to you is a result of you being uh, a mess up. It's not. We see that in Job and we see that in, in Proverbs, right? There are things that happen that we, that we just don't get. But we also know that when we walk in, in sin, God is a good enough dad that he will discipline his kids. Fourth, trust God enough to commit to his covenant community. The, like, I love Jesus, I just uh, don't love his church. It just, doesn't, it just doesn't hold up. Like, there are no orphans in the kingdom of God. You can't be a part of God's family and not be a part of his family. So trust him enough, whether it's here or, or anywhere else, to say to, say to, the, to the leaders of that church, I, wanna, I want this to be my home. And I want you to be my family. And I want to hold you accountable with, with all the love within me. And I want you to hold me accountable. And the last thing is this. Trust God to let you join the work of building up correction, forgiveness, restoration. Let, let, trust God to let you join the work. Church discipline, it does not begin in a, in a member meeting. Church discipline begins in, in your quiet time with the Lord every single day. Church discipline begins when you say to a friend, hey, do you want to have some coffee? And you say, look, I, I know this is tough, but I, I love you enough to say, there are just some things in your life that they just you seem different, you seem off, or, or the way that you treated her, or when you did that. All right? and, and when that happens, we get to trust Jesus with our identity, and we get to say, I'm a mess. That's what we get to do. Remember, discipline is everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin. So, tell your sister you're sorry. Tell her, forgive the repentant. The only way to do any of that, to fight for purity, to fight for unity, from a sincere heart, is to be remade by a love that's, that's deeper than what Christ did to show us, and not only show us, but to offer us, and not only offer us, but to invite us into. He was cast out as punishment for sin so that we might be brought in and restored through the love of God. Sin doesn't get the final word when love has its way, and we get to respond, right? I, I invite you into communion as I explained it already. That's for those who are part of the family, Right? And if you're outside of Jesus, you've never trusted him, then that's not for you. You can sit right where you are. You can stand up and you can sing. There's a prayer bench over there. There will be a few people by that red tree. We'd love to pray with you. And if you're just quiet, you don't want to talk to anybody, fill out a connect card, and we will follow up with you this week. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your goodness, for this family. What a joy. What a sweet time.
that we get to come together weekly under your word, in your name. We get to sing to you and about you. We get to respond. Holy Spirit, would you, would you draw us near through this word, through a, a side conversation, through the reflection questions, uh, through songs that we sing, would you draw us in? God, would you let us join you? Would you let us hate our sin? Let us confront sin, beginning with our own and, and in the lives of those around us. Would you let us be a part of restoring purity, removing brokenness? Thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen.